found like three real areas where when positivity becomes toxic, it can be damaging. And the first one is that it makes us really isolated. So if I feel like I'm the only one that's struggling and no one else is, I'm never going to talk about it. Or if people tell me, you know, just to smile, just be happy. And I feel like I'm being dismissed. I'm going to shut down. It also makes us suppress our emotions, which we know clearly in the research shows us that suppressing emotions is really bad for you. And when you suppress them, they end up just coming out in other ways. So maybe not being able to sleep or drinking too much, whatever it is. The other part is that it holds up a lot of these problems in our society that really need to change and be complained about. You know, if we meet people who are struggling with some type of prejudice with like, can't we all just get along or just love each other? Then nothing will ever change. everyone. This is the Decoding Success Podcast and you're rocking with your host, Matt Labrie. I want to kick this episode off with a question that I believe you will relate to because many, many, in fact, I would probably say 99% of the people that would ever listen to a podcast have been exposed to what we're talking about today. Have you ever had someone in your life, a friend, a family member, or maybe just memes that you have come across on social media that have said things to the nature of just be positive, good vibes only, Stop being so negative. Never give up. That's a really big one. And that right there is what is called toxic positivity, something that we're discussing today with our friend Whitney Goodman, the radically honest psychotherapist who is behind the hugely popular Instagram account called Sit With Wit, the author of the new book, Toxic Positivity, and the owner of the Collaborative Counseling Center, a private therapy practice in Florida, where she helps people who want to improve their relationships and emotional awareness. She has her own column in Psychology Today, has been featured in the New York Times, Teen Vogue, New York Mag, InStyle, and Good Morning America, just the millennial on a quest to make mental health information accessible and easy to understand, which is exactly what she's helping each and every one of us do here today, specific to the topic of toxic positivity. Now, we're diving into what that actually is on a little bit of a deeper level. I gave you some examples there, but we're also talking about how to bring a sense of realism to toxic positivity because we're surrounded by it so freaking much. Also, we're going to be diving into should we remove ourselves from situations and friendships and maybe even family that show us toxic positivity, how we don't get influenced by it and so much more. Really excited to have each and every one of you rocking with us here today because this is a really important episode. Now, with that being said, when this episode begins to resonate with you, because I guarantee you it will, I'm going to urge you to make sure that you are sharing it. As I always say, there is no fee for this show, but if there is one, it would be to share it with someone in your life. That right there is the ultimate way to pay it forward. You have the power to do so and to bring some positivity, real positivity, realism to their life. Now, without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Whitney Goodman. Whitney, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you. Your body of work is incredible. Sit with wit is incredible. I absolutely love everything you're putting out. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 
Of course. Now, my conversations with therapists on this show can go in so many different directions. So I'm actually going to go straight to the point here. You have a new (laughs) book out, Toxic Positivity. Really excited to dive into this. I have done as much research as one can do on this book, on the topic, on you. I'm just curious for the people that are listening, do you mind explaining what toxic positivity actually is? Yeah. Toxic positivity is the unrelenting pressure to be happy or be pursuing happiness and positivity, no matter what the circumstances. Now, how do you bring realism to a society that paints that picture for us, right? Where it's like, hey, just, you know, put a smile on your face or good vibes only and whatnot. Yeah, it's kind of tough. I think people like don't want to accept the reality or the real parts. And we have to learn to make space for both that there are unfortunately amazing things, neutral things and bad things happening all the time. Mm. Now, should we be separating ourselves from people that bring about toxic positivity into our lives? So I think it's up to us to teach people how we like to be helped and how we like to be treated. So if people are doing this to you, like using these types of phrases, it's best to say to them like, Hey, I know you're trying to be helpful and that's not really helpful to me or I don't really like that. Could you do this instead and try to teach them? Because most of these people are coming from a good place when they use a lot of this stuff, even if it is annoying. Now, with all of that being said, I mean, how do we not allow ourselves to be influenced by it? I mean, I I get caught up in it myself, right? And I most definitely have been, I don't want to use the word victim, but I've been a part of toxic positivity. Maybe not necessarily on the end of me, you know, sharing toxic positivity, but I've definitely brought it in. So I'm curious, like, how do we not get influenced by those outside sources? For sure. I mean, I've even been a perpetrator of it myself. And so I think just realizing like, or using those critical thinking skills, like when you're looking at posts or things that seem to be only one dimensional and very simple, like just smile, just be happy. Or, Mm. you know, we all have the same 24 hours in the day of thinking like, is that true for all people? How can I like really think about this in a more nuanced way? Now, did toxic positivity come about, I mean, because of social media? Like, I'm just curious to get an understanding of where you think it came about, because I mean, there's a lot of comparison, which I believe leads to toxic positivity. And obviously that happens from social, but what's your perspective there? So this is something that's been around for since the creation of the United States. It started out a lot in religion and then has sort of morphed into all these other areas of life. But I think social media has become this really interesting, like performative space where a lot of us are trying to appear happy all the time, always do everything right or perfectly. And that's just intensified it. And I think also made it not just like an American thing, but made it kind of start to spread around the world. Mm. So, I mean, you kind of beat me to my next question. I was going to ask you like, what are the dangers of falling into toxic positivity? But it sounds like you just alluded to one, which would potentially be ignoring how you feel to, I guess, people please in a sense or to fit in. Yeah, exactly. So I found like three real areas where when positivity becomes toxic, it can be damaging. And the first one is that it makes us really isolated. So if I feel like I'm the only one that's struggling and no one else is, I'm never going to talk about it. Or if people tell me, you know, just to smile, just be happy. And I feel like I'm being dismissed. I'm going to shut down. It also makes us suppress our emotions, which we know clearly in the research shows us that 
suppressing emotions is really bad for you. And when you suppress them, they end up just coming out in other ways. So maybe not being able to sleep or drinking too much, whatever it is. The other part is that it holds up a lot of these problems in our society that really need to change and be complained about. You know, if we meet people who are struggling with some type of prejudice with like, can't we all just get along or just love each other, then nothing will ever change. Right. Why did you decide to write this book now at this point in your journey? I know that you have a lot going on with your practice. I mean, you have a family, you have a lot on your plate. Writing a book is no easy task whatsoever. Yeah. It's kind of crazy when you write a book, it takes like two full years to it for it to come out. So I started on Instagram, just marketing my practice a couple of years ago. And I got introduced to this world of positivity on social media that I didn't really realize existed. The algorithm had not delivered that to me yet. And I started saving all these posts like on a Pinterest board and just started to notice it come up with my own clients and friends and family. And I was like, wow, we're all complaining about how we don't like this and it makes us feel bad in therapy. But everyone outside of that is putting on this act like this works and this is great. So there's something weird going on here. Mm. What's your advice to someone that's listening to this to accept what it is they're feeling versus, you know, being that isolated individual that you were just talking about? Yeah. I think once we realize that when we're having a true emotional reaction to something that whether we want to or not, we're going to feel it. And so once you accept that, like, I can't get rid of it, I can't think it away, it's easier to say like, all right, I need to feel this and I need to process it. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to like do anything about it or give it meaning, but just allowing it to pass through you and validating that like, all of us feel things all the time. That's really what makes humans humans. Now, for it to pass through you, I think acceptance would be a part of it, correct? Absolutely. So if you deny that you're even feeling an emotion, there's no way to process it. Mm. So if I say like, oh, I'm not mad about that. I'm really not upset. And I keep using all these caveats. I'm never going to actually work through the emotion. And I'm probably just going to end up feeling even more upset. Right. What brought you down this line of work out of curiosity? Like what made you decide that, you know, you wanted to be the person that holds space for people, does research, puts out projects like this? I have always like been so fascinated by the way humans think um, and what kind of makes us tick. I really like talking to people and learning their stories. And so when I graduated with college from college, I was like, what can I do with this degree? And I started looking at graduate schools. And this is really all I've ever done as a career. And I've loved every second of it. It's, it's really fascinating to learn from people like this. What's been your biggest takeaway in regards to, you know, having a practice? I'm sure you've met with hundreds upon hundreds of clients, like, you know, just from your experience of speaking with so many people, whether it's listening to their, you know, to what they're experiencing in life, the ups, the downs, you know, the peaks, the valleys, what's been your biggest takeaway? I think the thing that I see so many people struggling with is that we all are feeling a lot of the same things, but we think that other people aren't or that we're the only one that feels that way. And sometimes I wish I could just like put all my clients in a room and let them <laughs> meet each other because they would see, you know, how similar they are and how not isolated we are in this experience. What's been the most common thing you've, you've seen people maybe struggle with or whatever? 
think a lot of it is just like worry about a lot of these core beliefs. Like, am I good enough? Do people like me? Am I being accepted? Again, just feeling really lonely. How do we overcome worry? So I think what we have to realize is that worry has a function and it's important. It's what keeps us alive. It's what tells us what's important. What we want to do is not let worry about things that don't matter control our life. And so trying to get more in tune with like what your worry sounds like when you need to listen to it, when you need to tell it to shut up, I think is most important. So it's funny. The first thing I think about is like, how do you control your level of worry? Because we're not being chased by the saber toothed tiger anymore. Yeah. I mean, I've had panic before and I, I totally get how uncomfortable that is. But how do we control like our level of worry? So a lot of that happens with what's going on in your body. And I think most people are very disconnected from that. But if you can learn like what worry feels like when it's starting, it's really powerful. They did a study on people experiencing panic attacks. And it was actually like they had been experiencing the physical symptoms, I think, for up to 20 minutes before they noticed where they were at and like the level of anxiety they were feeling. And so if we can figure out what it feels like when it starts, it doesn't have to get to like a 10 out of 10 before we do something about it. Right. You just use the word disconnected and it makes me think of, I agree with that wholeheartedly. It makes me think that we're disconnected because a lot of us, uh, just from conversations like this, I've learned it from my own relationships. We don't necessarily want to feel, and I, I guess this ties into what we were talking about before. So what's your advice for individuals to like really sit with themselves and you know feel what, they, what they're feeling and connect with themselves? I think it requires a lot of practice. And most people think I should just be able to do this. And we don't come out of the womb knowing how to feel, how to label our emotions, how to sit with them. It's something we really have to learn from the adults around us. And I think a lot of them aren't very good at it. So it doesn't get passed down to us. And it's a skill that can be learned if you are willing to get uncomfortable and really just like know that feeling a feeling is not going to kill you. It's not going to ruin your life. It's actually going to help you a lot. Now, being uncomfortable could, that's the best word to use, could be really uncomfortable. So what's your advice to actually sit with it, right? Because uh, I'll give you an example. The other day I was out to dinner and I have really bad trauma with coffee. You can make fun of me. I, I make fun of myself with it. And I decided, all right, I'm going to face this. And I had a decaf espresso and I started to bug out. But I sat with the uncomfortable feeling. I processed it. I journaled it. What's your advice for someone that's listening to this to do something similar? So when we talk about processing feelings, a lot of that happens physically. So that can even mean like if you start to feel a strong emotion come over you, like I'm going to walk, I'm going to dance, listen to music, go to a workout class, like that can help you complete the stress cycle of that emotion. Journaling you mentioned is another great one that's been shown to be really effective. Labeling the feeling is super effective because once you can say, okay, what I'm feeling right now is fear, it becomes known to you and then you can do something about it. So if I'm afraid, what can I do to help me get through this? Right. I love this. I love this. I, I Like I said, conversations with therapists, I have a million and one questions. I want to jump <laughs> actually back to the book. Yeah. Um, if someone picks up the book today and they could only take one thing away from it, what would you want that thing to be? That negativity and complaining have a lot of value. And if we can learn mm -hmm. to 
channel that value, I think it can actually make our lives exponentially better. What's the value in complaining out of curiosity? So what we complain about is really such an inside look into what's important to us, what might need to be changed and what bothers us. And that's really what a lot of people come to therapy for is to talk about those things. And in a traditional context, it might be seen as complaining, but it's actually like can be processing or venting or trying to do something different. Right. And what's the value in negativity? I mean, obviously, I mean, if we don't have the negative, we really don't know what positive is. Just like if we don't have rain, we don't know what the sun is. But I'm curious. So negativity, again, complaining can kind of fall under the umbrella of negativity. And I think what we have negative reactions to is also such a good look at what bothers us, what matters to us. We also have to look at the negative if we want to be creative, if we want to solve problems. We bond with people over negative things a lot. Like you can probably Mm -hmm. think of people that you've been through difficult experiences with, or you've experienced the same thing and complaining or talking about those things is a big bonding practice. Totally random. And I don't know why this is coming up based off of what you just said, but how does toxic positivity relate to, and maybe it doesn't relate, receiving someone's good news and not necessarily wanting to respond to it. You know, maybe you're just not in the place to or the state to. Yeah, I actually did a a post on this the other day because I think that we think sometimes that it's toxic positivity if people want us to be happy for them, like in their moments of joy. And that's part of being a good support person is showing up for people even when we might be struggling. So some examples would be like maybe you're single and your friend's getting married and that really like bums you about it out about your own situation, but you still have to show up for them. Now, that being said, if you're going through a really hard time, you might have to say to somebody, you know what, I really want to be there for you. And I just can't get myself into that place. I don't want to bum you out like on your day. So I'm going to take some time and I'll celebrate you later. Mm. How do we bring about a hyper awareness? As you just mentioned, I think that's incredible to be able to deliver messages like that, right? Because we almost feel forced as individuals, or maybe that's just me to, you know, give a risk. And maybe it's because we live on such an, you know, an on-demand world where, you know, everything's so quick, but I just got a message earlier this morning, which I want to be happy for my friend, but truthfully, like I just wasn't feeling it myself. I kind of just felt tired and sluggish, so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. It's okay not to respond right away, especially if you feel like your response isn't going to be your best one. Mm -hmm. And even just say, like, you don't have to be totally honest if you want to respond and just say, like, hey, I'll get back to you in a second, or I'm about to run into a meeting, whatever it is. But I think a lot of us think that everything is about us. Like, when we hear somebody else's news, we're thinking about us. When we're telling them, you know, how we feel about it, we're thinking about us. And, and we have to step out of that ego sometimes. How do we step out of that ego? Because that's so interesting. We, and um, when I say we, I mean me. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think the world revolves around me sometimes. And it's like, dude, you're not that important. You know, we all think that. And I think sometimes that can be actually very humbling because you might think like, okay, if I don't respond to my friend right away, they're going to be so mad at me. You know, they're going to think I'm not supportive. And sometimes saying to yourself like, Hey, they're having a big day today. I'm not that important in the scheme of this can like humble you (laughs) a little bit and make it not so much about you. Right. Right. No, I definitely love that. 
I know that you hop on podcasts often and I'm sure you get a plethora of emails and DMs and whatnot, but what's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Gosh, that's a really, I haven't been asked that question before. I'm glad. Yeah, I guess I wish more people would ask me about like what therapy is actually like and what the experience is like. I think there's like a lot of smoke and mirrors around therapy, which is a lot of what I'm trying to bring to Instagram. And I would want to just tell them that it's it's really like coming and sitting on a couch and talking with someone that is on your team and wants to help you and that there's nothing you can say that's scary or weird, you know, that mm. it's it's all very normal. Yeah, I, I think, well, for me, I have a therapy session in one hour, by the way. I love it. Amazing. Like, it, it, is, <laughs> it is so freaking good, especially for men. I'm going to ask you the opposite of that question. What's the most common question you get? The most common question I get is how do I make so-and-so stop doing this? Or how can I make this person Mm. change? Like whenever I do like ask me anything questions on my Instagram, it's always about like, how can I get someone else to do something or to stop doing something? And obviously we can't control anyone else. So yes, we, we really can't control other people. And to me, I always want to flip that back on like, what's bothering you about this? What do why is it upsetting you? What do you wish was different? And if this person never stopped, never changed, what would you do? Is that a people pleasing question? Like, or is, is it something else like wanting someone else to like fit, you know, how we want them to be? It can be. I also find that some people are like, I don't want to change. I just want you to change, particularly like in couples therapy and things like that. Of Like, how do I get my husband to, you know, start remembering to like celebrate our anniversary, but they're not asking the person or saying like, Hey, I want to do this or taking the initiative. It's like, you just want the other person to meet your needs without you doing any changing. So it it almost seems like we're going to go down the path of relationships here, which I absolutely love. (laughs) What are the signs of a emotionally healthy partner? So someone who is open to dialogue, that's flexible, that can have conversations, you know, you want to look out for like low levels of defensiveness, low levels of stonewalling, which is like when someone refuses to talk about something or does the silent treatment. I think just being open and and the ability to dialogue about things is the most important. Now, I mean, again, I can go down the rabbit hole here with this topic. What are the questions we should be asking someone to find out if they're healthy, if there are any? So a lot of it is about like, does this person seem genuinely interested in your needs and wants and meeting in the middle? Or are they only talking about themselves and what Mm. they want and what they need from you? I think when there's a level of collaboration, that's really important because we all want and need different things in relationships. What I think is healthy or good might be totally different from what you want. And what people need is just to have two people that are willing to meet in the middle on those things and both feel comfortable. Right, right, right. I love this. (laughs) I'm going to transition off of the relationships here. Yeah. This, this has been an absolute phenomenal conversation. I appreciate every, every minute of it. Honestly, incredible book, by the way. I read the digital version that was sent over. Absolutely amazing. One last question for you, though, Whitney. If you could, you know, you hop on as many stages, you work with as many clients, write as many books, hop on as many podcasts, all of that good stuff, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would that one piece of advice be? 
I hope people remember that it's okay to be human and that we all have different emotions, negative, positive, neutral, and that that's okay. That's actually a good thing. That's the one that. thing I want people to remember from my book. I love that. I am going to make sure that all social links, websites, where people can get the book is in the show notes of this episode. Anything else that you're working on that we should make people aware of? No, I, I just had a baby and a book. I'm like about to take a nap for a little <laughs> while and then start up later. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That is incredible. Again, Whitney, appreciate you hopping on here and uh, excited to promote this. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You have just tuned into the Decoding Success Podcast, the top 1% globally ranked show in all of the land that helps individuals live their best life by filling each and every bucket of their life, from their relationship to their profession, to your career, your business, to your health physically, mentally, as we talked about here today, a true component to modern day mental health with toxic positivity. And I want to give a huge shout out to our guest, Whitney Goodman, who joined us to help us paint the picture for what it is and so much more. You can check out Whitney in the show notes of this episode where you could find all of her contact information, where to reach her, where to find her, where to keep up with her. All of that good stuff is in there. Huge shout out to Whitney. Make sure that you let her know that you heard her here on Decoding Success. You're still tuned into this episode. So again, I'm going to urge you to make sure you pay your dues and pay it forward by sharing Whitney's good word with the people that are in your life. If you're going to throw it up on your Instagram story, your Twitter, your Facebook, your LinkedIn, make sure that you are tagging us both. Let her know that you heard her here on Decoding Success. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.